We're looking at Genesis 42. We're up to Genesis 42. And um, you may notice that I'm seated, uh, fighting a virus and um, 90% back, um, but doing things like standing and talking at the same time is still a bit of a challenge. So uh, we're going to sit and talk at the same time. Mostly. I, there's probably parts where I'll stand up because you know me. Uh, Genesis 42, 1 through 25 is what we're looking at. And when we last left Joseph, meanwhile, back at the ranch, when we last left Joseph, um, you remember that the famine had started and he was managing everything. And um, now, uh, the last verse um, in chapter 41, 57, moreover, says the narrator, all the world came to Joseph in Egypt to buy grain because the famine became severe throughout the world, which is just a clean setup for what we have here in chapter 42. When Jacob, Joseph's dad, remember him? When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons in deep compassion and, and warmth, why do you keep looking at one another? I've heard, he said, that there's grain in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he feared that harm might come to him. Thus the sons of Israel were among the other people who came to buy grain, for the famine had reached the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. It was he who sold all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. When Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. But he treated them like strangers and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from, he said. They said, from the land of Canaan, to buy food. Although Joseph had recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Joseph also remembered the dreams that he had dreamed about them. He said to them, you are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. They said to him, no, my Lord. Your servants have come to buy food. We are all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. But Joseph said to them, No, you've come to see the nakedness of the land. He said, We, your servants, are twelve brothers, the sons of a certain man in the land of Canaan. The youngest, however, is now with our father, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, it's just as I've said to you, you are spies. Here's how you shall be tested. As Pharaoh lives, you shall not live, leave this place unless your younger, youngest brother comes here. Let one of you go and bring your brother while the rest of you remain in prison in order that your words may be tested whether there is truth in you or else, as Pharaoh lives, surely you are spies. And he put them all together in prison for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you're honest men, let one of your brothers stay here where you are in prison. The rest of you shall go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. Thus your words will be verified and you shall not die. And they agreed to do so. They said to one another, Alas, we are paying the penalty for what we did to our brother we saw his anguish when he pleaded with us, but we would not listen. That's why this anguish has come upon us. Then Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to wrong the boy? But you would not listen. So now there comes a reckoning for his blood. They did not know that Joseph understood them, since he spoke to them through an interpreter. 
He turned away from them and wept. Then he returned and spoke to them. And he picked out Simeon and had him bound before their eyes. Joseph then gave orders to fill their bags with grain, to return every man's money to his sack, and to give them provisions for their journey. This was done for them. This is the word of the Lord. I recently watched the show Intervention for the first time. This is a reality show where they follow an addict and they see whether or not by the end of the episode if this particular addict will go into treatment. It's an intervention. He thinks he's doing like a documentary and his family all knows that what they're really trying to do is set up the intervention. In this particular episode, the addict was a young man and he was addicted to painkillers. And you learn that he became addicted to painkillers because he had been in a very serious car accident and he had been prescribed the painkillers, obviously, to deal with the after effects of that trauma. But he became addicted to them and he started to snort them and then he started to buy and sell them. And then basically his life became all about getting high or sleeping off a high or figuring out when he was going to get to the next high. And so you learn this about the kid and you think, man, this kid is seriously messed up. Then they start to do interviews with the family. And you learn that this kid has a mom and a dad and a sister and a grandma. And the mom and the dad were married for a while and then kind of split up because the dad, turns out, had a drug problem. And the son and the dad used to get high together until the dad overdosed and died. And then you find out that the mom had a brother who was also involved in drugs. And the grandmother called the police on this particular uncle and that his life has never been the same. He's still in lots of problems. And so this grandmother here, when the mother kicks the son out of the house, the grandmother lets the grandson come and live with her because she has incredible regret about the way she treated her own son. And so she has this grandson come and live with her and she cooks for him and cleans for him and does his laundry and watches him do drug deals in the garage. And at one point she looks right into the camera and she says, well the reason I do his laundry for him is because I don't like to do partial loads. And you think, oh it's not just the kid, the whole family's messed up! Like this whole family is seriously messed up. Wow, codependency, oh man. Seriously messed up. These people need an intervention. It's a lot like this family we've been reading about here. Jacob, you know, betrayed his brother Esau with the help of his mother. Jacob got betrayed by his uncle when it was time to marry his wife, Rachel, ended up marrying Leah. Judah thinks his daughter-in-law is a prostitute, so he sleeps with her. Reuben sleeps with his father's concubine. And then the brothers all together gang up on their younger brother, who has this fancy little coat that they're all envious of, and they throw him in a pit, and then they sell him off to slave traders. And then, lo and behold, all these years later, the brothers come into Egypt, trying to get some grain, and the guy who's in charge of the whole thing turns out to be, bum, 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 their long-lost brother. (laughs) 
And so they go before their long lost brother. They don't know that it's him, but he knows that they are them. <laughs> and he says to them, you are spies. You have come to look at the nakedness of the land. And they say, no, 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 really, no, 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 we're not. We're all brothers uh, of the same guy. And there are 12 of us. Well, there were 12. Okay, there were 12, but um, well, one's back and the other one's no more. And um, so we're just 10 of us and nobody sends 10 brothers out to spy in the land because if you send 10 brothers out to spy and they all get captured, or they all, you know, then you gotta you know, like send a special group out to rescue the one remaining brother and it becomes a movie starring Tom Hanks and it becomes this whole thing. <laughs> nobody sends out 10 brothers to all spy in the same, nobody does that, we're brothers, we're just, we're all, don't we look kind of alike? Don't we, we're not spies? You're spies, he says to them. But I'll, I'll do a little thing for you, I'll do a little test. Here's the deal. Nine of you stay here, one of you goes back, gets the youngest son. He comes back, I see that you're all brothers, I, I you know, my bad. And then he does this, he puts them into prison. He puts them into the dungeon. He puts them into the pit. Turnabout is fair play. Now why does Joseph do that? Revenge? Maybe. I mean, wouldn't you want to grab these guys by the beards and just like drag them off into the dungeon? But the text gives us a few clues that there's something else going on here. Verse eight. Although Joseph had recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Now if you've been with us for the series, you may remember that this word recognize is a very key word in the Genesis narrative. Isaac doesn't recognize Jacob, that's why he's able to pull off the betrayal. Jacob doesn't recognize Leah, that's why Laban's able to pull off the swatcheroo with the whole wives thing. The brothers bring the coat of Joseph to Jacob and say, recognize this, isn't this your son's coat? Every time there's a recognize word going on, it's a little plot twist. The author is signaling to us that this is a family coping mechanism to deceive, to recognize, to not recognize. Joseph recognizes his brothers, but they don't recognize him, and this gives him the upper hand. This gives him the advantage. This gives him time. Because verse 9 tells us that Joseph also remembered the dreams that he had dreamed about them. Now, you may remember way back at the beginning of the semester, way, way back, we looked at that story about the dreams. He had the dream that he and his brothers were all getting sheaves of wheat and then oh, all of a sudden all of their sheaves of wheat bowed down to his sheaf of wheat. And then he had a dream that there were sun and moon and stars and they represented his family and they all bowed down to him and he just happened to tell them those dreams which started this whole process off. Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed. Now you may remember that when Joseph interpreted Pharaoh's dreams, he said to him, you dreamed this twice, 
That means it's fixed and God's gonna do it. Remember the two dreams that Pharaoh had? One was about the fat cows and the skinny cows and one was about the healthy corn and the wilted corn, right? Two dreams mean the same thing. So Joseph says to Pharaoh, you dreamed it twice, that means it's fixed and God will do it. And so here is Joseph. He has seen the cupbearer's dream, he has seen the baker's dream, he has seen the Pharaoh's dreams all come to fruition. And his dream, dreamed 20 years ago, is now finally happening right before his eyes. And the brothers come in and bow before him. And we can imagine Joseph taking this all in and sitting back and, oh, look at you all bowing before me. What does this remind me of? Oh, sheaves of wheat! (laughs) You can imagine him being a little cocky in the moment, except for the fact that we've also seen how Joseph has matured over these 20 years. We've seen that he's able to recognize when God is at work in the fulfillment of dreams. We've seen that he pays attention when God works through the dreamer and when God works through the dream and its fulfillment, Joseph knows that God is up to something. So he puts his brothers in jail for a time. And then he brings them back out and he says, all right, let's switch the deal around. Nine of you can go back, one of you can stay. And then the most amazing thing happens he hears his brothers say how much they regret what they did. Alas, we are paying the penalty for what we did to our brother. We saw his anguish when he pleaded with us, but we would not listen. That is why this anguish has come upon us. For 20 years, Joseph has been waiting to hear his brothers say those words, wondering if they had any remorse, if they had any regret, waiting for 20 years for his dreams to be fulfilled. And because he hears what he hears, and he hears Reuben's words about being an advocate for him when they all wanted to throw him in the pit. He is overwhelmed with emotion, and he turns and leaves the room, and he weeps. Joseph's tears are a signal of everything he has carried within him for these 20 years. He's been holding it all like a beach ball underwater holding it all for 20 years. Think of all the sleepless nights when he thought about his father's love and that coat and his own arrogance. But he thought about screaming from the pit for his brothers to answer him. And he thought about the slave traders and Potiphar and Potiphar's wife and the time in jail and the baker and the cupmaker and the the pharaoh and all of it just running through his mind and thinking, when is this dream going to be fulfilled? I have no idea what's going on in my life. Just holding it, holding it, holding it, wondering about these brothers of his. And suddenly they're before him. And not only that, but they regret what they did. And the beach ball pops up just a bit. And Joseph weeps. 
when you want to do an intervention with somebody, when you want them to face their addiction, the first thing they have to do is admit that they have a problem. The brothers here are admitting that they have a significant problem. We are getting paid back for what we did. Alas, alas, alas. And even though they don't know that they're doing it, the brothers take this first step, this first step toward reconciliation, this first step toward truth, this first step toward health. And even though they don't know that Joseph can understand them, they make these words, they claim these words, they say them out loud. And in response, Joseph takes the first step toward them. We see that in his choice of Simeon. Reuben was the oldest. If there was anybody who was going to stay behind, it should have been Reuben. But because Reuben has been an advocate for Joseph, Joseph will be an advocate for Reuben. And he picks Simeon, the secondborn, to stay behind. And then Joseph does this. He puts all the grain in their sack. He fills it all up. He puts the money back in their sack. He gives them provisions for their journey. And in that exchange, we get a little glimpse of God. Because what God is doing here at the end of the book of Genesis is staging a bit of an intervention. God is letting this family see that all the ways that they have used to cope with their pain, all the things that they have done to make it seem like we were all fine, we're all just making it through, that's not working anymore, it's time for change. And the way that God does this is through the fulfillment of these dreams of Joseph that started this whole thing off years ago. God allows Joseph to hear his brother's remorse, to hear Reuben's words. He sees his brothers bowing before him in the present and regretting what they did in the past. And Joseph responds to the fulfillment of the dream with incredible grace, just incredible grace. He could have kept them all in jail. He could have made them his slaves. He could have sent them back without food. He could have taken all their money. He had all the power. They had nothing. Nothing. But God had given Joseph a glimpse of what he had been working for, not only since the dreams that Joseph had, but way back since the human family became so messed up. God is working to take the estranged pieces of our human family and bring them together. And so here, Near the end of Genesis, we see God moving to bring this family back together again, admitting it as the first step. It was for the brothers, and it is for us. We have families that are seriously messed up. We have families where no one talks about the fact that Aunt Mary doesn't come to Christmas anymore. No one ever asks grandpa about his drinking. We come from families where everybody yells and we come from families where nobody speaks. We come from families where sexual abuse has affected people from generation to generation, where pornography is killing marriages, where every meal ends in a fight. 
For some of you, being away at college is the first time you know what it's like to live with people who don't yell at you. For some of you, it's the first time you felt safe because no one was going to hit you. We come from families that are seriously messed up. And we cope with the pain in all kinds of ways. We hide behind our GPAs. We mesh our lives with our girlfriend or a boyfriend. We drink a little too much on the weekends until it becomes a little too much every day because we're looking for the painkiller. We're looking for something that's going to take it away. And so we run after things that lead us further from God and further from each other. For the brothers, it was these old secrets, these things that all of them had been holding underwater for so long their arms were aching, the betrayal of their father and the faked murder of their brother. And they had to confess it. They had to get it out. They had to say the words. And so do you. Some of you have stuff from your childhood that haunts you. Some of us have regrets from high school that are still just knocking around in our heads. Some of you have things that you did on that semester abroad that you wish you could forget. Some of you did things last night that you're regretting. God is working tonight in you on the same project that he's been working on since humanity fell into sin, since there was the estrangement, since there was the brokenness, since we started running away from God and away from each other. God is working tonight to do what he has been doing since Genesis 3, which is to bring everybody back together again, you with him and you with each other. He's working tonight on that project. And the only way to receive the cure is to first admit how sick you are. Alas, said the brothers, alas, we are paying the penalty for what we did to our brother. We saw his anguish when he pleaded with us, but we would not listen. That's why this anguish has now come upon us. Alas, they said, alas, alas, we sang a few weeks ago. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my sovereign die? Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives and his disciples followed him. He withdrew a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him and being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. We take the first step and it's toward the cross because there is nothing you can do to erase your sin. There's nothing, listen to me, there is nothing you can do to fix your family. We just have to admit that we have a problem and that we are in desperate need of a savior because we get one.
Did you notice in this story how long the brothers were in jail? Three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you remember back, the dreams of the cupbearer and the baker were fulfilled in three days. If you remember farther back, you know that Abraham and Isaac journeyed into the wilderness where God provided a ram for them in three days. If you know, looking ahead, Moses and the people of Israel wait for God to appear on Mount Sinai for three days. If you look farther ahead, you know that Jonah was in the belly of the whale for... You know that Esther invited the people to fast and pray with her before she went to the king for... You know that Hezekiah pleaded with God to save him and they found out the answer in... And you know that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was in the grave for... And then he rose again on the third day. On the third day. In biblical stories, three days always points to a time of crisis and turbulation and not knowing how things are going to come out. Three days always means three days of pain and sorrow and unknowing. And I don't know where you are right now. I don't know if you're on day one and it seems like it's never going to end. But because of the cross and because of the empty tomb, We know that our God is continuing to work to bring us to the third day. This is what our God does. Our God is a reconciler. And it breaks his heart when we run toward other people and other things and other addictions rather than coming to him. And it breaks our heart when we run away from each other because confronting each other and getting to what really matters takes too much effort and too much time and too much vulnerability and we'd rather just suck it up and make it to the end of the school year. Our God is a God of reconciliation. That's who he is. He was the author of reconciliation. Jesus Christ was the agent of reconciliation and we, because we are disciples of Jesus Christ, are ambassadors of reconciliation. This is what God does. This is who God is. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, he can equip you to go to another and say, I am sorry. I hurt you. Forgive me. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, he can come to you and bring to mind people that you haven't forgiven, the grudges that you still hold on to tight with clenched fists and say, just begin to release them a little today. A little more. A little more. This is what our God does. This is who our God is. He is one that breaks down barriers. He is one that runs after his sons and his daughters. And we are addicted to all the crap of the world. And tonight we get to take the first step. And we get to gather around a table where the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ are broken and poured out so that none of you need to be alone anymore. And all of us get to be in the same big, beautiful, 
messed up family of God. And we are brothers and sisters, broken, messed up, together. And we come forward in hope because our Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead on the third day. And we are, even in the face of day one, even when the nights are long, even when the pain is hard and fresh, even then, we are third-day people. We are third-day people. We are third-day people. Will you pray with me? Oh, God, so often we run through life running far from you and far from each other. And we try and plug all the holes in our hearts with things that don't last and don't sustain us. And so tonight we pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit and because of the grace you have demonstrated for us through Jesus Christ, we will step toward you. That we will lay down our addictions to the things that don't matter. That we will turn away from hurting others and we will turn toward forgiveness. We pray, gracious God, that we will stop holding things underwater until our arms ache and instead release them all into your care and into your keeping. Help us to rely on our brothers and sisters. Help us to trust them with our whole stories and help us to trust you and your love for us. We pray this through Jesus Christ who rose again on the third day. Amen.